Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, and Hope, sorry, I do apologise, George, um, just one second while we try to fix our, um, Wow, it's been a long time. Oh my God. So, good morning. We do apologize about that. Um, I guess because I haven't seen the girls in a long time. So, we got to chit chatting and the time came upon <laughs> us so fast. But you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Lauren, and George. Welcome and day. Yeah, thank you guys. We missed you, Ayan. We missed you. Oh, well, we missed you. <laughs> I missed you too. Mm-hmm. Um, should I play the Tuesday Breakfast theme? Or yes. I think it's too late for that. Just. All right, let's get started. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And we're back at Tuesday breakfast. It is going to be 30 degrees today. Mm, sunny. What? I'm, not I'm not prepared. Not prepared? No. I'm just calm down after the last time. <laughs> Another heat wave. No, I shouldn't. I, I think it's going to be like high 20s, low 30s for the next couple of days. Doesn't sound too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to launch into some news headlines now. But before I do, I just want to apologize to my mum. I'm sorry that I screamed this morning when you tried to say goodbye to me. <laughs> I'm not used to living at home and having your housemates uh, say goodbye to you at six oh, in the morning when you leave the house. Oh, this is the cutest use of the Okay, so into some of the news headlines for the last couple of days. Indonesia's parliament has voted on revisions to the criminal code that may outlaw extramarital and homosexual sex, meaning they carry maximum prison sentences of five years and 12 years. That one I tried to find if there was any new information about last night, but it seems that there is no information about what the vote, the result of the vote was. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. Mm. We'll keep an eye on it, though. Yeah, it's strange because apparently they were meant to vote like on the 14th of February. So I'm, I don't know mm. if it hasn't reached international media yet or they haven't got a verdict, but yeah. we'll keep a lookout for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Guardian has reported that a refugee on Nauru who is at high and imminent risk of heart attack or sudden death has refused treatment because the Australian border force won't let her 16-year-old son travel out of the country with her on five separate occasions since September 2016, and with increasing urgency, doctors have requested that Fatima, an Iranian refugee, be moved off Nauru for advanced heart checks that cannot be performed on the island. 
Emma Alberici, economics analyst for the ABC, published an article on corporate tax last week. So for those of you who haven't heard, no. so on the se- so this article is basically uh, discussing a lot of Australia's companies that don't pay corporate tax, or of those that do, the low amounts that they actually pay. And on the same day that Alberici's article was published, the Prime Minister referred to it in question time as one of the most confused and poorly researched articles he'd ever seen on this topic on the ABC's website. On Friday, the ABC removed the article, citing that it did not meet editorial standards. An accompanying news story by Alberici has been rewritten and reposted. The removed article reported that one in five Australia's, of Australia's top companies have paid zero tax for the past three years, among other pieces of information that are very interesting about Australia's companies. And for context, later that day, Emma Alberici tweeted that in 2011 she was nominated yeah. <laughs> for a Walkley Award yeah. for a story about tax minimisation. Hashtag oh. just saying. Yeah. Uh, ABC, get, um, get it together. What's yeah, happening? it's really, I mean, it's kind of scary because I think we put a lot of trust in the ABC mm. to represent things objectively and be a trusted news site and the fact that they potentially, I mean, we don't really know what happened, but it is very suspicious that, mm. you know, you've got the Liberal government calling out this article and then the article's been removed. Yeah. Mm. Um, but you can actually read the original article on johnmanadu.com. Oh, John Manadu. <laughs> what a what sweetheart. Is it? is it a... Oh, he's just a beautiful... Um, well, just I, like an older lawyer man, and he just runs this blog called Pearls and Irritations. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just this, um, I don't know, um, I always go to it if I want to read a really in-detail analysis about mm. a very specific um, legal thing. Right, okay. And it's, um, yeah, it's just very, like, um, niche. Cool, if you yeah. Know. And uh, apparently also a big fan of Emma Alberti. Yeah. Yeah. He's come <laughs> through, come through with the goods. That is, that's all for my news headlines. Well, I might pick that up because I have just been um, having a little pick around Twitter and um, it's interesting that this um, backlash against the ABC is sort of, I mean I've been seeing it a lot in relation to Q&A especially Mm -hmm. and not just because people are incredibly frustrated by just this kind of stifled debate with having all of these politicians on Q&A but also accusations of imbalance in the panel's guests. So you know quite frequently representatives from like the IPA or um, that's the Institute of Public Affairs like a right wing think tank. I don't know if I'm allowed to say right wing conservative think tank. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry Chris Berg if you're listening. Um, He's definitely not. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, uh, so there's a few accusations of imbalance happening anyway. Um, and I just, I mean, I guess part of me wonders if we sit quite specifically in a particular spot on the political spectrum. So we may never think that something is particularly balanced because of our vantage point. Um, but who decides balance and how yeah. can we be sure that our national broadcaster is not becoming some kind of government mouthpiece? So are people arguing that it's becoming more conservative? Yeah, or at least, or not necessarily that the ABC itself is becoming more conservative, but that it is allowing a greater platform for conservative voices. Mm. Um, and yeah, which I guess is not necessarily mm. not the same thing. But mm. It's um, so difficult because I think that argument of imbalance is made by people from both sides of politics. Absolutely. Mm. This is, yeah, this so, is yeah, I mean. your so point, how do we actually know what, whether like it is? Like, do we want the panel to be stacked full of Van Batam and Yasmin Abdul-Majid? Yeah. Or, like, mm. will that make us feel better? Or Yeah. Mm. Mm. 
I, I don't watch the ABC. I used to watch Q&A back in the days. And then I think after you see a few episodes, you, re- you realize it's the same. It's, it's, it's the same formula. It's the same safe um, conservatives. It's the same safe um, uh, progressives. Right. Mm-hmm. And the few that you do get who are like as close to radical as they're going to get. There, there's always a backlash, mm, right? And then, yes. and then for a while, they won't have anyone as radical. Like come Yasmin, on. she's yeah, not even you, that radical but at all, at yeah. all. But she, she was, um, 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 she's Muslim. She's Muslim and she's black. So that in itself is like already shocking. So for her to, to even open her mouth to disagree, mm. for people that was like, what? Mm. But yeah, no, I don't. ABC, I don't know. Is ABC cons- is ABC um progressive compared to other channels or they've always been I, so, I think they've always had this kind of slightly left leaning mm. slightly pretty no, no, totally. pretty I like mainstream but slightly left wing kind of perspective but I think with a liberal party in power it might be difficult for them to maintain that yeah because ultimately it, they are a government but I do also think that it's interesting reading so when late line was cut last year um the new Matilda published this really interesting article about how Late Line had essentially, um, oh, I don't want to get this wrong, <laughs> but it was it was about Late Line's role in the coverage of the um, intervention in okay. the Northern Territory and yeah. about Tony Jones's personal um, coverage of and relationship with the intervention. And it was just mm. really interesting because, I mean, when I, I was raised in a household that... Um, Certainly watch the ABC a lot and listen to the radio and all of that sort of thing. And, you know, I was raised on John Fane and all of that kind of thing. But <laughs> Raised on John Fane. <laughs> so quite an image, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so I certainly thought that it was like a fair and balanced and slightly progressive or at least a bit left kind of thing. But reading these sorts of, like the older you get and the more, the deeper analysis that you're able to do or the more deeper analysis that people do and you can read about, obviously. Thank you, mm. Chris Graham at the New Matilda. Mm. Um it's really interesting because I have to wonder if have we always just thought that it's left wing, so we've just kind of, I don't know. I feel mm. like I'm really rambling. No, 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 yeah, no, it's no really. interesting topic. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's let's hear some um, subscriber drive um, CSA. Grace here, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio straight into your car. Straight in. Like, 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company. No matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it, and you can just stick it right into you. (laughs) Is any kind of attachment you want? (laughs) To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? $150. One fifty. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and we're going to go to a song now, and I'm going to dedicate this to the girl sitting to my right, Georgia Louise Maxwell, who has recently discovered the beauty that is Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill. (laughs) This is X Factor from her album, The Miseducation. (laughs) 
love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others were... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 94198377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. So before the break, we heard from the beautiful Lauren Hill, and now we are going to hear from an Australian singer called Okenyo with her song Mirage from her record Ten Feet Tall. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. This is Billy X. Jennings of the Black Panther Party. Power to the people. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12 p.m. on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. We were going to have an interview with Richard Weston, who is the CEO of the Healing Foundation. 
and they had lots of events last week for the 10th anniversary of Rudd's apology. Hopefully we'll be able to get on to Richard later in the program, but we might move on to something else in the meantime. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think we're going to play now a speech by um, a high school senior from America named Emma Gonzalez talking after the um, recent school shooting in Florida. And this was broadcast on Democracy Now! Um, so we'll hear from Emma. She gave a moving address at the gun control rally in Fort Lauderdale on Saturday. They haven't already had a moment of silence in the House of Representatives, so I would like to have another one. Thank you. Every single person up here today, all these people should be at home grieving. But instead, we are up here standing together because if all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. Constitution, our guns have developed at a rate that leaves me dizzy. The guns have changed and the laws have not. We certainly do not understand why it should be harder to make plans with friends on weekends than it is to buy an automatic or semi-automatic weapon. In Florida, in Florida, to buy a gun, you do not need a permit, you do not need a gun license, and once you buy it, you do not need to register it. You do not need a permit to carry a concealed rifle or shotgun. You can buy as many guns as you want at one time. I read something very powerful to me today. It was from the point of view of a teacher. And I quote, when adults tell me I have the right to own a gun, all I can hear is my right to own a gun outweighs your student's right to live. All I can hear is mine, 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 mine. Instead of worrying about our AP Gov chapter 16 test, we have to be studying our notes to make sure that our arguments based on politics and political history are watertight. The students of this school have been having debates on guns for what feels like our entire lives. AP Gov had about three debates this year. Some discussions on the subject even occurred during the shooting while students were hiding in the closets. The people involved right now, those who were there, those posting, those tweeting, those doing interviews and talking to people are being listened to for what feels like the very first time about this topic that has come up over 1,000 times in the past four years alone. I found out today that there's a website called ShootingTracker.com. Nothing in the title suggests that it is exclusively tracking, tracking the USA's shootings, and yet, does it need to address that? Because Australia had one mass shooting in 1999 and Port Arthur Massacre introduced gun safety, and they haven't had one since. so that they can be formulated into statistics at your convenience. 
I watched an interview this morning and noticed that one of the questions was, do you think your children will have to go through other shoot school shooter drills? And our response is that our neighbors will not have to go through other school shooter drills when we have had our say with the government and maybe the adults have gotten used to saying it is what it is but if us students have learned anything it's that if you don't study you will fail and in this case if you actively do nothing people continually end up dead so it's time to start about mass shootings in America, but because, just as David said, we are going to be the last mass shooting. Just like, just like Tinker v. Des Moines, we are going to change the law. That's going to be Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in that textbook, and it's all going to be due to the tireless effort of the school board, the faculty members, the family members, and most importantly, the students. attention to so many signs that the Florida shooter was mentally disturbed even expelled for bad and erratic behavior neighbors and classmates knew he was a big problem must always report such instances to authorities again and again we did time and time again since he was in middle school it was no surprise to anyone who knew him to hear that he was the shooter those talking about how we should have not ostracized him? You didn't know this kid! Okay, we did! We know that they are claiming that there are mental health issues, and I am not a psychologist, but we need to pay attention to the fact that this isn't just a mental health issue. He wouldn't have harmed that many students with a knife!
in the one and one half months in 2018 alone, that comes out to being $5,800. Is that how much these people are worth to you, Trump? If you don't do anything to prevent this from coming, from continuing to occur, that number of gunshot victims will go up and the number that they are worth will go down. And we will be worthless to you. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. And that was um, Emma Gonzalez um, on Democracy Now! She is one of the students who survived the shooting in Florida. Um, and that was such a powerful speech. And, you know, count on young girls to, to be the um, leaders of the future. Mm. Um, so many interesting points. Um, the 30 million. Yeah, that was a pretty incredible um, dividing that into to what a life is worth. Yeah. That was really powerful. I just really quickly want to say um, that was pretty intense and um, discussed a lot of quite heavy themes. So if that raised anything for you and you need to talk about it, um, please give Lifeline a call on 131114. Mm. And I think they're organised. We were, we were mm. saying that they're organising a, a walkout in March. Yeah, it looks like high school. Was it you that was telling me? High school students. Yeah. Um, across America are, are talking about doing some mm. kind of mass protest, yeah. um, which is pretty incredible. Uh, absolutely, because mm. I think young people are so young people are so savvy, and especially when she said, oh, we're tired, maybe adults are just desensitized mm. to hearing about this violence and then just going, you know, being outraged for a short period of time and then moving on. And she's like, no, you know, where are the victims? Where, you know, because a lot of these shootings are happening at schools. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when she said that people had warned the authorities about this young man. Like everyone had done what, like everyone did what you were supposed to do. Yeah. You know, when, when they say, if you see something, report it. They did that. And I'm going to bring race into it because race is a big factor. Had this kid been like Muslim because Muslims are racialized or this kid had been like black or just, you know, um, Hispanic, Hispanic. I, I, I think this guy is like maybe like, I don't know. I, I think he's he's a person of color. Like, I don't want to say he's a person of color, but just maybe I'm judging him by the Gonzalez name. Mm-hmm. And but he he um is white appearing um that's what we know and 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 he's a young man so being a young white man does you know give you privileges does you know um allow you to um go under the cover and um even trump's response to it like he was like oh you know this is a mental health issues what about that poor kid who built the clock yeah and the fbi came and dragged him away because they said he built a bomb Right, twelve-year-old. Do you remember this? He's, no. Um, yeah, the he's, Somali kid as well. Yes, he's a Muslim boy. He's black, and, and he, he, just he built. built a clock. Yeah, he yeah. he like loves science and robotics and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. So absolutely, it's not about reporting. It's about access to guns. It's about um, mm-hmm. who who can have access to. Someone wrote on Twitter. Someone said, the only way, one way to change the minds of the um, NRA and conservatives and anyone that supports, um, uh, you know, these crazy gun laws, um, he was saying all the Muslims go out and register to get your (laughs) license. That would shut things down. Like, people would all of a sudden be like, hang on a second, this uh, amendment situation, I mean, really, does that apply to our times? So um, it's just something idea. I can't psychologically understand. Like, why why are people so attached to their guns? I just can't 
Yeah, I don't know. It's mm. a, you, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, documentary uh, Bowling for Columbine. Oh, like years and years, years, and years ago. Years ago, but but at the start there's a cartoon mm. and it talks about um, how uh, like white people started holding onto their guns, um, especially I think after the um, uh, after the, they got rid of slavery. I don't know mm. what the exact thingy is called the uh, abolition of slavery or, mm. or or whatever and um when when black people started sort of um having freedom all of a sudden white people were sort of like <laughs> you know like so, sort of sense. holding onto their guns mm-hmm. because um now it's all of a sudden like oh shit uh, the, oh the people that we've been oppressing for so long okay now they've got um uh, a bit of freedom and and this idea that americans are so fearful that they're going to be taken over they're so fearful of mm. the other you know whether it's a black person whether it's like um uh like an, someone that's mexican you know someone someone other than who they consider to be ideally american which is you know white american so they're so fearful and um all the all their conspiracies about being taken over and mm. so it's, it's, it's going to be a long battle but it would be interesting to see what the future holds and Good on young women. Mm, Seriously. Yeah. That was incredible. She was very powerful. She's only in high school. Yes, yeah, sis. I don't know who's mm. educating you, but please. <laughs> She's clearly educating herself. But yeah. So we thought that would be um, someone amazing to share with our audiences. Yeah. And yeah, um, I think we have some uh, more amazing interviews coming up at 7.50, which is in the next 10 minutes. But I thought maybe we would play a song in the meantime, oh, did you really? Do I did, I did, <laughs> and 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 while me and George try to fill up um, empty, uh, air, um, <laughs> Lauren is looking for a song. No, 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 that's fine. I think we should uh, continue with the fabulous strong young woman theme and play "Revolution" by Sampa the Great. Ah, mm-hmm. bro. Hey, and that was our homegirl, Sampa the Great, with Revolution. God, I love her. I, I love her. She's just amazing. It's too much. Sampa the Great. So, I moved into a new Sampa. house. Oh, oh yes, yes, tell us. And I christened Sorry, the Sampa, house. Sorry, Sampa, go on, tell No, us. no, no, it's about Sampa. Oh. I christened the house by opening my, uh, my new speaker uh, moment with her album, Birds yeah. and the Bees. Yeah. Hey. Beautiful. Look at that. Mm-hmm. She's out here christening houses. Sampa doesn't even know the power that she has. <laughs> no. I yeah. hope she's listening. She's definitely not listening. Everybody's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> they should be asleep. This is the time that I would get up. Speaking of the time that I would get yes, up. Yes, tell us about well, your that has changed somewhere. <laughs> full-time man. Full-time work is <sighs> something that I would... You know, the thing is, I'm, I'm grateful that I have structure because I feel like mm-hmm. I felt like before I wasn't I didn't have a lot of structure in my life so now it's good to account for my hours I'm um, not that I wasn't but you know it's it, it's it's good knowing that there's like set times to do things yeah. I my personality enjoys that my makeup enjoys that um, but now I don't have any time for creative pursuits like by the time I get home I'm exhausted mentally exhausted mm, I'm still yeah. in the training period but when I get home I don't have time to like prepare for radio I don't have time for um 
like my other you know other creative stuff that you need, I do. You need time to just switch off, like to give your brain a rest when yeah. you've had fun. Right. And, and it's also not you you can't be creative when there are other things crowding your brain. Yeah. 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 I mean it's just you don't have the energy and and um it's adjustment though. So like I mean obviously I've been working full time the entire time you've known me. Yeah. And I feel like when I first started working full time I went through this and I think most people that I've talked to who transitioned from like studying or part-time work or whatever to full-time, especially nine to five, those business hours Mm. go through this period of just like a month or two of complete exhaustion Mm. and kind of like zombie, like you can't function as you're normally, as you normally would. But I don't know, you kind of, your body just gets into the routine and Mm. you, you find it easier to create space outside of business hours in your brain. Yeah. See, I don't mind being exhausted if it's something I'm passionate about, but yeah. it's, a, it's a job that I've l- only taken because it it pays the bills and, you know, it pays well and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm so terrified, like, I'm so terrified to quit because I don't want to go back to um, the whole job active. For those who don't know, job active is like these people that Centrelink sent you to and they're supposed to f- help you f- um, find jobs. And just the pressure of going there where you'd have to report every week and just sort of tell, tell them, yeah. have you been looking for work? Yes. Where did, where did you look for work? You know, you, you've got to um, submit like a certain number of jobs that you've applied for, I think, every fortnight, if I remember. Or once so a month. demoralizing as well. Yeah. It you never is. get even callbacks on those jobs. Right. Nothing. You do the cycle for months. At all. And, and this job, I got it on my own. So it was it was, you know, thanks to me. Um, so they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is either upskilling you or finding you work, right? They're supposed to help you with stuff like resume writing and cover, cover letter writing and, and, and they don't. It's just a place where they sort of keep you and it's sort of like the, they're babysitting you, yeah. basically. It's like the babysitter that you never ever asked for. And, um, yeah, so it's just, I mean, hopefully, who knows, maybe in a month's time, I can report back and be like, oh, things have changed. But right now, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a struggle and it it's, a, it's a big struggle. And, um, you know, but I also, I'm fortunate in that I'm, I don't have dependents. Mm-hmm. I live at home with my family, so I've got a roof over my head. And the bills that I pay now, it's just like extra for the family and I can save up, which is good. Yeah. But... I don't have the pressure of, you know, if I leave, I've got mortgages. Or if I leave, you know, um, where who's going to pay my rent? I don't have those stresses. So I'm thankful and I acknowledge the privilege that I have. But I just think about all the people who are stuck in these positions and and they can't leave. And there's nothing worse than waking up in the morning and going to a, a job that is demoralizing or going to a job that just doesn't, you know, it... There's nothing worse than a job that's like soul crushing. Yeah. Right? Because it starts to affect your mood. It starts to affect you as a person. I think that's such a, um, it's such a thing in Australia to talk about do what you love. Um, but, but that's a real privilege to mm. be able to do what you love. And I think now we're going to go to an interview with... We're going to speak with Julia Kretzenbarker, who is a barrister and member of Liberty Victoria's Criminal Justice Policy Committee. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Julia. 
Can you tell us a bit about the work that Liberty Victoria does? Yeah, sure. So Liberty Victoria is um, one of the oldest civil liberties and human rights organisations in Victoria. Um, broadly, we look at government policy and any impact it might have on individuals' rights. Um, we often are asked to file submissions in respect of legislation that's planned um, and we also respond to new bills um, and new legal proposals um, that are um, that will be implemented. We look at um, broadly different topics. We look at um, asylum seeker and refugee issues. We look at criminal justice policy um, and also privacy issues. Mm. It sounds like a really important organisation and comprised of mostly volunteers uh, that our very own Lauren is involved with as well. That's right. It's a volunteer-run organisation. And Julia, can you talk us through the recently proposed sex offender scheme brought forward by the Victorian opposition? Yes, absolutely. So um, currently, if you're convicted of um, some sexual offences, there's a mandatory requirement that you're placed on a register for a number of years. And for some offences, it's a discretionary requirement when you're convicted um, either after pleading guilty or after being found guilty. Um, my understanding from um, the media releases and public comments is that the opposition proposes to make the information that's included, or sorry, to make some of the information that's included on the register publicly available for people who seek information. So um, somebody could apply um, to search the register um, with their, in terms of their area where they're living to see if there are any people um, who have been convicted of sex offences living in their area, but they could also look for specific um, individual names. Um, the plan, as I understand it, would be that um, people would be able to apply to access descriptions, photographs and the current suburb of anyone who's convicted of serious sex offences. Um, the proposal does include uh, penalties for the misuse of information, um, and as I understand it, there would be a uh, commissioner who would determine what information, if any, is released. Um, but Liberty Victoria has quite serious concerns about this information being made publicly available. Mm. And why, what, what are the concerns that Liberty Victoria has about this proposed scheme? Yeah, sure. So in terms of um, this scheme, it's modelled uh, on what started off as Megan's Law in the US, um, which is... Uh, which has been in place for a number of years in the US where this information has been made publicly available and Megan's Law has been studied um, over a number of years since its implementation and those studies have shown that making information publicly available does not actually have any impact on the rates of resending or reduce the number of offenders. Um, there was one study done in 2008 by the New Jersey Department of Corrections um, and it was quite a... Uh, in-depth study that looked at a 21-year period and some of the conclusions that they had was that Megan's Law had no effect on recidivism, it showed no effect on reducing sexual reoffending um, and it had no effect on reducing the number of victims. On the flip side of, of making this information publicly available um, is of course that most sexual offending occurs between people who know each other and it's often within families. Um, so 
our, another concern that we have is that making this information publicly available poses a real risk to victims of sexual offending because if a sexual offender is identified um, through a photograph in a small community and there have been rumours floating around in that community about what might have happened at home, there's a real risk that a victim is then identified. There's also a risk, of course, to innocent family members living with sexual offenders um, that they might be harassed by their neighbours or by other people um, if that information is made publicly available. Mm, so it sounds like it's, it's quite difficult to understand why the opposition would be proposing this scheme. It's been described as a silver bullet solution. Do you think it's just a ploy to gain votes from the public for the upcoming election? Well, criminal justice policy is incredibly important, but it should be evidence-based. Mm. And the studies have shown that this is not an effective policy. It's a an attractive policy because it um, it it's emotionally um, I'm trying to think of a good way of saying it. It's attractive because people want to be armed with the information they think is necessary, but it's not actually looking at whether that information actually has any practical impact on rates of reoffending or um, what risks there are to victims. So it is um, a matter where crime policy will be a big election issue and um, it's an attractive policy because uh, people will respond emotionally to it, but in terms of its actual practical effect, it won't have any um, positive effect on rates of reoffending. And there's also a risk that it might actually increase the risk mm. to the public because it provides a false sense of security that those who are a danger to you are the strangers rather than um, yeah. people such as family members. Yeah, that's an excellent point about who, who are the actual perpetrators of um, of sexual violence. And is it also an issue in terms of the broad nature of offences that you could be considered a sex offender? Um, is it as a, as a child if you take pornographic photos of yourself and then you could be on, on a register with someone who has done much more heinous crimes? Is that right? That's right. There, there is a discretion for younger people who are charged with those offences. But, yes, for example, if you're 18 years old and you're in a consensual relationship with someone to 15 years old, um, you could be charged and convicted of those offences and then at the age of 18 could be placed on a register and that's in circumstances where it was consensual. Similarly, if you are in a consensual relationship where you send pictures to each other of a sexual nature um, and you're 18 or 19, there's a risk that you might be placed on the register as well. Mm, so it seems like there's a lot of negative consequences of this sort of naming and shaming system. Um, if you do oppose Matthew Guy's scheme, what improvements can be made to the current system, if any? Well, the system itself is quite in-depth and the obligations on people who are convicted of sex offences um, are quite onerous. So they have to go to regular interviews with police. Um, some people are on the register for life, so any for the conditions are quite broad, but for example, any online logging that you have, you need to report to police um, within about a week of of having an online login. You might need permission to use certain um, uh, devices or have access to the internet. So the conditions are already quite onerous on people um, and police are well aware of um, who is on that register and, um, and what conditions are on them. 
All right, so, so you think that it's already a pretty good um, system that's currently in place and maybe there just needs to be more information to the public about um, how, how the government approaches this? I think that's right. I think if people knew um, how many conditions were on people and how long people actually on that register for, I think if people were made aware of the risks to victims of sexual offending, if this information is made public, they might be content with, with what we already have, being quite a strict registration policy and a strict policy of notifying police um, about your movements, about where you live and about who you have act- who, who, who you might uh, be living with um, and people on the register might um, not be able to live in certain areas because their children are close by and things like that. So I think if the public were more aware of all of the conditions that are placed on people under the current register and also the negative impacts on victims that making information publicly available would have, they would be happy with um, or feel more comfortable with the system that's in place at the moment. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. That was a really informative interview. Thank you. Thanks so much. So that was Julia Kretzenbacher from the Liberty Foundation to talk to us about the opposition's proposed sex offenders scheme. Uh, she's from Liberty Victoria. Not Liberty Foundation. Oh, sorry. sorry. They'd, just, they'd kill me if I didn't correct that because <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> you got to remember, Nanop's a special day for us, fellas. As a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy off. So we're going to launch into straight into another interview. We're going to speak with Richard Weston, CEO of the Healing Foundation. Hi, Richard. Richard, are you there? I'm here. Hi. (laughs) Sorry about that. Thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Yeah, look, it's great to be here. I'm just sorry I was running a little bit late. No, no, no worries at all. Um, So last Tuesday on the 10th anniversary of the Reds' apology to the Stolen Generations, um, just for our listeners, uh, the Healing Foundation hosted the Apology 10 concert. How was the day? Well, look, it was a... I guess it was an important occasion, particularly for stolen generations, but for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for the whole country, I think, just to mark the occasion of the apology. And it was the 10th anniversary. Um, and on that Tuesday, there was a breakfast in the morning up in um, the Australian Parliament with Kevin Rudd speaking and um, Nigel Scullion spoke as well. Uh, and we had um, Florence Owners from the Stolen Generation speaking. And then... Later in the evening, we had um, we had we held a concert um, uh, just on the in front of Parliament House on the Parliament lawns, and 
Um, you know, we had a fantastic turnout from people um, in Canberra and people that came from uh, interstate as well to, to attend. And um, we also had a live audience being streamed on Facebook by NITV. So the, the response to that, of you know, the concert was, was fantastic. Mm. And it seems like a really important part of the work that the Healing Foundation does in terms of organising events. And uh, uh, oh, look, it's mm. one of the things that we do. Sorry. No, go no, on. no. You, you go. Pardon me. Uh, look, I, uh, look. It is. Um, look, it's part of the commemoration of, you know, of the apology. So, what? Why we hold the concert is to, um, just to mark the importance of that event, the, the actual apology itself, and you know, the prime minister of the country standing up in the national parliament, having that broadcast all over the country, and saying sorry, sorry for past past atrocities, part and. Sorry for the hurt and pain inflicted on on children that were forcibly removed from their families, and it's really important for us to um, honour those uh, stolen generation survivors, uh, honour their courage and their strength. Um, but I think also it's just to remember, try and for all of us to try and remember what it was like when uh, Mr. Rudd delivered that apology, how it, it um, felt for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, because it was. Um, momentous. It just felt like for the first time this nation was ready to right the wrongs of the past. And I think it also drew the broader Australian community together as well. And, and that was quite significant. So really important for the foundation, I think, to support stolen generations to mark the importance of that particular occasion. But, um, you know, it wasn't the end of the story. It was the start of the healing journey, but there's still a long way to go. And we, we, we heard a lot of um, reporting, I think, last week about, you know, close the gap and how that has, um, you know, hasn't quite hit the mark. And, and so we all, we do know there's um, you know, there's a lot of debate going on about what, what needs to be done to, to close that life expectancy gap. But as far as the anniversary of the apology, we think it's important to honour the stolen generations. Mm, and... I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but what impact do you think the apology has had on the stolen generation, generations 10 years on? Well, 10 years on, I think most people would say, look, we, you know, we haven't made enough progress in terms of overcoming disadvantage. Um, and, and there's been, I mean, I think the good thing that came out of the apology was the closed gap strategy, even though it hasn't, hasn't done as well as we might expect it. The good thing about it, from my point of view, was that it was a, a recognition that we needed a, a long-term strategy to address the wrongs of the past. So, um, and that'll continue on, perhaps in another form. The government's doing some work on that. Um, but as far as the Healing Foundation, it, it meant the Healing Foundation was established, and we've been able to do a lot of work around the country with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and stolen generations to to really understand their needs for, in healing and also to understand the impact of trauma mm. um, on families and on communities. And that's been really important work. But um, And we've been working in partnership with the Australian government for the last um, last six months or so on a project to dive deeper into understanding the needs of the stolen generation. So we've been doing a demography analysis and a, and a needs analysis, and we've just started to do some have some discussion with stolen generations to explore what they see as their their current priorities, particularly as many of them are getting older and looking at going into the aged care system and, and how that's impacting on them.
the thought of being reinstitutionalised. So there has been some progress um, in terms of the work of the Healing Foundation, but still a lot more, lot more to do. And, and you know, we need a lot better engagement between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and policymakers mm. and, and politicians. It, it's it's a little bit fractured at the moment. Yep, that that um, point you raise about how. Um, you work with members of the Stolen Generations in order to see what, what they need. It's a very sort of uh, like an emp- empowerment approach as opposed to imposing, you know, this is what we're going to do to assist. And, and also you, you yeah. touch on uh, trauma. Um, what, what impact does trauma have um, for, for members of the Stolen Generations? Well, trauma's had a huge impact on, on people. So, um, uh, you know, when, when children experience um, uh, challenging events in their in their lives, in their childhood, which the stolen generation did. You know, it affects things like their sense of physical and emotional safety, which impacts on the way they function in life. So it affects their social, emotional and physical um, functioning. It affects also their cultural and spiritual functioning. So, and those impacts don't go away easily. They, they're, they're long-lasting. And for many people, you know, who are in their you know, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s are still feeling the hurt and pain that they experience as children. So it's really important that we understand trauma for that reason, that it does have this long-term impact and it also um, increases the risks of other, other, other impacts like poor health, um, more likely to um, experience violence, more likely to um, abuse alcohol and other substances come into contact with the law, so spend time in prison. Um, so many of the social factors and social challenges we have in our communities are driven by trauma of the past, and that trauma doesn't stop mm. these stolen generations. It's been transmitted from one generation to the next. And so the work of the Healing Foundation is really trying to understand that better, but then also look at how do we recover, how do we support healing processes in communities. And as you just said, we don't apply a template or a, 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 an approach. What we do is we partner with, um, or so we've partnered with Stolen Generations, we partner with communities and Aboriginal organisations to work out and um, to work out what they think needs to be done and then we support that. And we've found that we've had really good results working that way. And, and I think if you listen to some of the debate that's going on, it's what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are saying and have said for a number of times, you need to work with us mm. um, and not do things to us. And so the Healing Foundation has been modelling that kind of partnership and co-design approaches, which are you know paying paying uh, paying dividends, mm. showing results. And so, in your conversations uh, with members of the Stolen Generations, what what ha- what has the consensus been in terms of moving forward? Look, the the things that they they still they they want to address one addressed is firstly they they see the need for a national reparation scheme so um, I know people tend to focus on the issue of compensation or finance, individual financial redress but reparations is broader than that you know um, stolen generations are also looking for access to healing services and projects programs um, not only for themselves but they're very concerned about their their children and their grandchildren and the impact that their lives have had on those descendants. So they're, they're, they're very keen to make sure that their families, their descendants, have access to to healing services. 
um, they are really keen to ensure that people understand trauma, so they want to see workers that, that work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people better informed about trauma and its impacts and how to work with people who come from a, a traumatised background like stolen generations and others. Um, and uh, and they 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 are looking at um, they're supporting a uh, the idea that we should have a national approach, a coordinated approach to tackling intergenerational trauma, so that we can stop you know help stop the cycle of trauma, help stop the cycle of disadvantage that's in our communities. And um, you know we know that since the apology, the number of, of Aboriginal kids going into out of home care has more or less doubled. So we know that what we're currently doing isn't isn't working well enough um, and we, we need to start in, investing, see the government and others investing in solutions think that are going to make a difference. Mm. Do you think that there is a lack of understanding in um, the broader community about the impacts of trauma and uh, in terms of supporting some of these um, ways of moving forward with reparations and healing services and a, na- a national approach? Is it is it important to um, to try and make the uh, general public gain a better understanding of of the impacts of trauma in this in this case of the stolen generations? Yeah, well, w- w- one of the other things that stolen generations are very keen to see is that their story keeps getting told, and that's one of the reasons we commemorate the apology every year and other other anniversaries. Um, they want their story embedded in the school curriculum. Um, so that all Australians now and into the future learn about the story of the stolen generation. Um, and the reason they want to do, they want that embedded in our, in our education system and so the story is continually told is that they want to see the world become a better place. And I think, um, as far as the broader community or the broader understanding about trauma and its intergenerational impact, I think that we are starting to understand that better. Um, I think there is more um, mention of it in in policy making circles, and some of the states are, are well ahead. New South Wales are doing some work around healing, and they've been on that track for um, you know for a couple of years now. Queensland is looking at a statewide healing strategy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and there's some really important work being going on in Victoria in the child protection system and, and the health system down there. So I think, you know, generally there is a, you know, there is a developing a better understanding, but we do need to scale up what we're doing. We need to do some more in-depth research into trauma and its impact so that we understand, um, you know, what sort of um, things do impact on the child and how they carry that through their life and then what other impacts that that's having having on on other people that they come into contact, and if we can, you know, break that cycle, keep children safe, um, you know, keep families strong, um, then then we have a really good chance of of really starting to see that gap gap start to close. Mm. I think that's a really excellent point you raise about education in schools and remembering um, the history. Um, and I also think that you know, you know, the focus that that you have at the Healing um, Foundation, um, centering on trauma, is a really important aspect um, in, to the process. And we look forward to seeing what will happen in the coming years. Thank you so much for your time this morning on the program, Richard. Yeah, thank you very much. So that was Richard Weston from the Healing Foundation to speak about um, ten years on from Rod's apology to the Solon Generations. Mm-hmm.
and I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. And we are now joined on the phone by Jamie Lewis, who is a Melbourne-based performance artist originally from Singapore. She's currently collaborating with Terry and the Coz, a company which creates art in a various multitude of forms, including a show called Skin, which they are currently touring in Australia. Good morning, Jamie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. So um, let's jump right in. What is Skin? Um, Skin is a um, performance theatre and performance show, uh, a very participatory, exciting, interactive, fun work uh, that looks at the issues of trafficking and forced migration. Wow. Um, and so how, um, how specifically does Skin, like what is the um, angle that Skin takes in looking at this? Mm. Um, so this work was actually made really closely with uh, a local Malaysian NGO. So Terry and the Kaza are Malaysian um, that, um, performing arts company, uh, a duo. And they, um, they're from KL and they work really closely with Tanaganita, which is a local NGO there over the course of two years, um, you know, having access to research in the community. And they built this work over that time. And a lot of the approach was um, was very much about bringing these people's experiences and stories to the forefront and the, at the centre of the work. However, it is done in a way that is fun, that is real, that is, um, you know, so in the process, it wasn't just about the, oh, where are you from? How did you get here? What is that journey? But also just to look at them as real people. You know, what, what, what was something funny that happened for you? Um, things like that. And so, you know, you can expect some of those elements in the work. It, it is, it is fun. It is, it, but also serious. Um, but what it does is it puts the audience member in, in this process of, of almost like a simulation. Um, but in a way to be, to, a simulation of being processed as, as people who have been trafficked might have been, um, in, in the context of, of, the experiences of the people in Malaysia, and um, and and then kind of in a but in a fun way, kind of in a process. How do you get processed to be part of a performance work? Mm. Um, and that is kind of the model, uh, the, the the structure of the work essentially. Right. And so, um, did you feel like that was an important aspect of the story to tell? Because obviously, human trafficking is something that um, that is talked about a lot um, in probably unsurprisingly a pretty negative way, um, was there a certain human element that you wanted to bring to the individual people's experiences or? Um, yeah, for sure. I, but I think, you know, the, the work, the performance work, um, then takes on a kind of small physical theatre and dance aesthetic. And so mm-hmm. in some ways it, it, it also then takes, um, takes it out of the individual story um, and into this aesthetic experience and, and I think you're right. Like it's talked about in a way that isn't always positive, isn't always uh, full of empathy. Um, there's, there's, the issue is complex, and there's a lot of tension around the matter. 
Um, but the aesthetic experience, I guess, then it's, it's about a way to embody some of those complexities um, and, and to experience the work from an aesthetic experience rather than a, 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 an abstract theoretical or intellectual experience. Um, and then um, I guess then it is that, that way to open up a person's uh, thinking around the issue. So Terry Nakaz in Making Skin does not does not have one angle um, to present the work. In fact, it is about presenting this aesthetic experience in order for you to unravel um, what you thought you thought about it and what you might start to think about it. Um, part of the work, um, a big part of the work is having some or partnering some local NGOs at the end of, the, of each show in a kind of conversation space. And that's where, you know, we're not the experts, but we are facilitating through the performance, we facilitate a conversation with these local experts uh, on the issue, NGOs who are doing a lot of the work on the front line. Um, and, and that's where you get to unravel the, the emotional and aesthetic experience that you've just had in, into a real context of, okay, what, what, is, what is it like here in Australia when it comes to trafficking? And then, you know, the angle really is about then what you leave, leave with, what you decide now that you know a little bit more do you want to go and learn more about it? Do you feel like you could shift your thinking around it? Um, and, and you decide what you think about it. And I think that's the angle we're, we're taking with this. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and I like what you've just said about empathy and so that deeper understanding of everything and yeah, thinking about it yourself. Um, so, on that note, you are the post-show curator for the skin performances, um, and you've kind of hinted yeah. at why this is um, significant, the post-show work, but um, why is this so important, and what kind of work does that mean that you're doing? Um, so essentially, as a post-show curator, my role is to um, build these relationships with some of these local NGOs that work in this space. Um, like I like I said previously, the work was built really closely with uh, Tanaganita and KL, and and that's a relationship that um, you know how do you replicate that? Um, yeah, which is impossible. And so they brought me on to to develop that at least because I think it's really important to put the work in an Australian context if you're going to tour it here. I think what's important about that is to for us to interrogate ourselves, you know, here in Australia what are the systems and privileges that allow us to move across the world so easily? I, like, you know, you said, I, I'm from Singapore originally. I hold a Singapore passport. That allows me to move through the world extremely easily, um, you know, with visa-free status in, in many countries. And so I, I think, you know, there's, there's things like that to unravel for myself as well and for, for most of us here in Australia. Um, I think also one of the things in my early research in speaking with my peers and friends just about the issue in a really casual manner is that we don't recognize how real the issue is here. I think it's easy to think about the issues of trafficking and, and forced migration as some abstract um, people in the distant developing world experience. Um, but actually right here in Australia, um, it, on an everyday basis, there are people who have been trafficked in our midst. And, and I think that's a really, really important thing for a show to interrogate. Absolutely. And so um, is that the type of, sorry, oh, good English. Is that the type of thing that you take, um, you want people to take away from the performances to think about it both 
more broadly in terms of the human experience, but then also about what's happening in their own country? Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, like again, it's about people taking away um, a beginning of the understanding of the issue. Maybe you know, for some people, maybe they know they know a bit more about this. For some people, maybe it's really on the surface of what they they think they know about this. And I think you know, the reality is as well, the issue is um, extremely complex. The individual story and the systemic story, they're complex things. And, and so what I want, what, what we hope people can take away is the, that possibility to make a decision for themselves. You know, what does it mean to sympathize and empathize with the people who have been trafficked? Um, you know, and of course with the local NGOs that we are partnering with, I think, you know, I hope people can really take away that, 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 that sense of the local context and the urgency of that problem it doesn't matter where you are um, and, and which demographic of people we're talking about, you know, um, whether they be foreigners in a, in, a, in a developing country or people who are right here. Um, yeah, that it is much more real and, and, and we can't on one hand talk about human rights and then kind of not and be blind to them, the people who have been trafficked in our midst, yeah. Mm. And so what else are you currently working on? Oh, um, <laughs> you know, as a, as a theatre maker, performance maker, uh, we often in, have fingers and toes in different pies. Yes. Um, <laughs> I am currently, yeah, I, I'm currently in a kind of in-between project space. So skin is something I'm focusing on, um, but also at the same time doing a lot of research on the project. I'm working up in Darwin, curating a project with, some people out there um, called Accomplice. Um, yeah, we're making a work called Tropical Kitchen. That's a work that's been done last year, but an extension of it this year. And so we're building on that. Um, that's kind of the big thing this year so far, for Fantastic. now. Well, it is only February. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is, yes. Beautiful. So for anybody interested, you can catch Skin at the Abbotsford Convent on Wednesday the 7th of March, Thursday the 8th of March, Friday 9th, Saturday 10th, and Sunday the 11th of March, multiple shows each day. Um, tickets are $35 or 25 concession and can be bought from the Abbotsford Convent website. Um, and following this conversation, highly recommend that you stick around for the post-show conversations because it sounds like they're going to be really important. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. Good luck with the shows. Thank you. Thank you. And so we are almost at the end of our time. George is waving her phone at me, which usually means she wants to play a song. All right, I will hand over the ox cord. Like nothing in mind. No, go, play us. Oh, sorry, I didn't even put your line on. So I'm going to play a song by Jess Cornelius, who is mine and my dad's favourite artist at the moment. Uh, What did we play last week? Okay, I'm going to play... What am I going to play... Eyes on the prize. No matter what you do, there'll always be something to do. So we just heard from Jess Cornelius, my favourite artist at the moment, that that song was called Eyes on the Prize. And just to wrap up the show for today, 
Was it? Your enthusiasm is infectious. <laughs> Jam-filled program as usual. Jam-filled. Like yeah. a donut. <laughs> we, um, we had three fantastic interviews. One was with Julia Kretzenbacher from Liberty Victoria about the opposition's proposed sex offenders scheme and the mm. issues of that being both unnecessary and costly. Oh, I'm so not ready for this state election. Mm. Gosh, anybody committed to evidence-based policy should just go into hiding for the yeah. entire duration of campaigning, honestly. Matthew Guy, right? <laughs> Matthew, oh, don't even talk to me about that. No, we're not allowed to talk about politics on air. Shh. But still, <laughs> it's not just him. <laughs> and then we spoke to Richard Weston, who is the CEO of the Healing Foundation, to talk about 10 years on from Rudd's apology to the stolen generations. And lastly... We spoke with Jamie Lewis, who is a Melbourne-based performance artist, um, about a really, I think it sounds really interesting, this show coming up at the Abbotsford Convent called Skin, um, which takes a look at human trafficking and puts it in an Australian context. Mm. Um, All-round show, lots of different lots of different themes. Yes. Um, and also, I think we should make a special note of Emma Gonzalez, the high school student whose speech oh, right, about that's right. um, gun control in the US we heard earlier in the show and look we've talked about some pretty intense things today so um, if you're feeling a bit out of sorts um, please give Lifeline a call on 131114 um, and just take care of yourselves out there Um, have a great Tuesday and we shall see you next week bye Do you know an exceptional woman or group of women in the city of Yarra? Nominations are now open for Yarra City Council's 2018 Inspirational Women of Yarra Award. We are looking for women who make a contribution either through paid or unpaid work, volunteering or simply by being inspirational in the way they live their lives. All those who identify as women are eligible to be nominated. Nominations are due by Monday the 19th of February. For more information and to nominate, go to yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash women. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 941983 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now.